This episode is made possible by our generous patrons. To learn more, visit patreon.com forward slash ink to film. Welcome to the ink to film podcast where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm James and I'm Luke. And this week, with the help of special guest Fonda Lee, we discuss Francis Ford Coppola's 1974 film, The Godfather Part Two. Welcome back, award-winning author Fonda Lee. It's good to be back. I'm so excited to talk about Godfather Part Two. It's my first time seeing it, and uh, it was it was really something. So what were your impressions, having not seen it before? I've seen it multiple times, so I'm curious as to <laughs> what your initial reactions were. Uh, very positive. Uh, you know, I it's it was it was a very good movie, and and but very different. But very, I don't know. It was different and similar, and I definitely have a lot to say about it. Uh, I do. I do want to call out James. You are playing hurt with us today. You just had your wisdom teeth out, so you're going to be probably be talking a little bit less than usual. But you know, you. I, thanks for powering through it. Yeah, I'm still here. I'm, I'm bringing the uh, bringing the info. I did did a lot of research for part two <laughs> as well, and uh, yeah, I'm excited. I'm glad to hear that you enjoyed it, Luke. Because after, like, I know that you enjoyed the first one, but you said that it was a little under what your expectations. Because they were so massive. So I'll be interested yeah. to hear that from you. And it's great to have you back, Fonda. Thanks for coming. Yeah, Godfather Part 2 is, I think I said this last week, one of the few sequels out there that not just lives up to, but in many ways surpasses the first movie. Mm. Um, and I think it's um, one of the few sequels. I think Lord of the Rings was the other one that actually won the Academy Award for Best Picture. So um being right now actually in the midst of writing second book of a mm. trilogy, I can really appreciate the enormity of the task that, um, that Coppola had in front of him when uh, the studio was like, follow up this insane hit with <laughs> like something that's going to live up to it. And I do have to say, speaking of uh, this being a great story, we did finish your your story as well. We Luke and I finished reading Jade City, and we're definitely going to talk about that. And I just wanted to say, from the perspective of somebody who's doing the podcast with you, what a fantastic piece of work! Like it was, it was so much fun to read, and and like really just like I can totally see where where you were coming from with how it's kind of homage while also entirely being its own thing, and and it was really cool. Oh, thanks. That's very much what I wanted to accomplish, and I'm curious about. Uh, how you guys um, experienced it because we were doing the Godfather book and the movies at the same time. <laughs> and usually, you know, people aren't going to be reading my book with that direct um, of, a, of a comparison. And obviously, you know, there's so many other influences that went into the book. But I imagine right. that certain things would have popped because we were doing <laughs> it this way. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that, I mean, that's exactly what happened for me. Um, it was It was like, Things were leaping out, and I was going, "Oh, this is kind of like this," and I could see maybe maybe this was in was in your mind when you were writing this, and 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 it was funny because I was like, "Yeah, I would probably would never would have noticed that if I wasn't watching the movie while I'm reading it," you know, and just steeped in in both of those because like right, my my head's swimming with all these gangsters right now, <laughs> um, which is awesome. It's super fun, but um, yeah, it was. Doing those two things in concert, I wonder if hopefully some of our listeners did the same thing, honestly, because it would be interesting to know if people had any similar reactions to that. So 
Uh, let us know if you do. And yeah, and um, if you haven't, definitely check it out. I yeah. highly endorse it. Yeah, if you like The Godfather and you like fantasy and sci-fi and all that stuff, like if that, if those two things overlap for you, you should absolutely be reading this book. <laughs> I'm also hoping that um, even people who aren't into mafia films or aren't familiar with The Godfather yeah. um, will check it out because I think what we had we've mentioned this before that um, one of the things that The Godfather succeeds in doing is kind of breaking out of the tropes and the, um, I guess, the cliches of the mobster movie, the mafia yeah. movie, and being really more of a family saga about the relationships between these members of the family. And I think you see this a lot in The Godfather Part Two. It's something that I tried to put a lot into my book and sort of make it uh, much more about the family drama. And I think Godfather Part Two succeeds on a level even greater than Godfather Part One, um, largely because it becomes intergenerational in a mm -hmm. way that is yeah. uh, is even more pronounced. And if Godfather Part One had that sort of succession story of Vito passing the torch on to Michael, here you really see kind of the bookends of the Corleone family. You see like the rise of Vito as a young man, and you see really the struggles and um, I think the beginning of the fall of, uh, of Michael. And that, the way that that has frames the movie, the way that the movie is structured, creates that contrast throughout in a way that like just gives this movie an epic scope that you yeah. don't see in pretty much like any other um gangster film or in most other films of this genre the way that the present story and the the flashback so perfectly line up kind of lend it to this you know everything's drawing parallels to each other but it's like you'll you know we'll see stuff going on with fredo and then we see like young fredo being born something like that and it's just like the way that like like you said like i feel like Vito is building this family and building this empire and then michael has this empire and he's losing family and like realizing how important it is but just it's not working out for him like the family is failing him or he's failing the family yeah i think structurally i was also thinking about the story and you know, it's not an easy one to kind of map out in my head. Like, how is the structure of this story? Because you do have two parallel structure, two parallel stories, each with their own structure. I don't know if you could call it three act for the flashback because it really isn't because it sort of leads to it almost is. But then it has that final flashback, which is more in the future and has a different kind of note to it. Um, and then I don't know, this is getting like story nerdy, but like, is that a denouement for the for the for the pr for the prologue part or the prequel part? Um, and then the, the, the modern, the, the more, uh, further in time part of the story, uh, I don't know, contemporary storyline, I guess I would call that, even though it's not, that one also is kind of not really a three act structure. It feels more sprawling than that. So it's interesting. Did you do any, like, did you think about the structure of this movie at all? Uh, these series of movies at all, when you were thinking about Jade City? I did not really. I mean, I really thought of. Uh, the Godfather Part Two as two intersecting stories, and I saw it almost like as a, um, you know, if you can imagine, sort of a graph with like, you know, the story of the family rising um, um, in one plotline and falling in the other, and so there is this the sort of balance to the story of um, a rising arc in one area and a falling arc in the other area that. Yeah 
creates that kind of fascinating juxtaposition throughout. Um, I don't think it's one of those movies that I would try to ever break down into like <laughs> hero's journey or three act system at all. Uh, but it works and it, and it, I think it works incredibly well. And I'd, I'd read somewhere that initially there were more cuts. There were more breaks between the, uh, the past and the present in terms of flashing back and forth. And um, in editing, they decided to make each of the pieces longer. So you follow Michael Corleone and his storyline for longer before you go back to Vito. And so you, you get to stay with those characters a little bit long, longer, um, which I think makes sense because the risk that any filmmaker would run into trying to pull off this kind of structure would be fragmenting the audience's attention. And it could have happened here um, and... Certainly as a writer, I'm very aware of the fact that every time I do a flashback, I'm asking the reader to break their attention. And it's a, it's a place where someone could stop reading and be like, okay, well, this is a break. I'm going to put the book down. So to maintain momentum throughout um, multiple flashing back and flashing forward instances um, is tricky. And it's done here because it's done well here because it doesn't happen all that often. You do get to stay with the characters for good long chunks of time. And when it when there is a transition, it's done very well thematically. Um, so like James mentioned, you know, there's there's these it leaves at points where um, where you want to come back to those characters. I, I think one that pops to mind for me, you know, is uh, is after Fredo gets the phone call and you realize that he's the traitor in the family. Mm-hmm. And so you you really you know that that this is going to come to a head in the in the present day storyline, but that's when um, the film shifts and you see you see young Fredo. I think he's like he's crying because he has pneumonia, and you see like Vito's worry for him, and mm-hmm. and so you're immediately invested because the same characters are in both timelines, and the contrast between between them in those two different timelines is really fascinating. So I think another reason that it works so well, and I agree with all that, is is also just the presence of Vito Corleone in this story um, and his absence from the further timeline um, that I think like he was such a big figure in that first movie and I missed him. Like I missed Marlon Brando. I missed having him on screen and so I was really glad that we got this extended uh, look at his life before. And Robert De Niro obviously comes in and and, and and plays this iconic character and felt a little different. But also I could tell it was it was supposed to be the same person. So that was good. Um, but it's so hard because, you're, you're, you know, Marlon Brando was such a presence. Um, I don't know. It was interesting. But b- before we get away from it, just because I was thinking when you mentioned Hero's Journey... I started thinking, and I think Vito's story actually is a sort of Campbellian uh, hero's journey because he 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 leaves Sicily to a strange land, grows, changes, learns, becomes a new person, and then returns home to meet out vengeance. And that return home is such an essential part of that hero's journey, right? Return home having changed. And so it's interesting because kind of nestled within this other story, there is sort of this rise to power hero's journey going on with Vito. Um, And I honestly didn't even think about that until you said it. And then I was like, could it fit? And then I kind of made it fit in my mind. So 
I don't know. What do you, what do you think? No, it's a good point. I, I think you're right. I think um, you could also view uh, Michael in the first Godfather movie in that sense, right? He's like the yeah. prodigal son who leaves and, you know, he he gets called back and, and you know, returns, if you will. So mm. he's he is a much more heroic character in the in the first movie, you know, the second movie um, does uh, goes beyond kind of the typical um, place where you sort of end the hero's journey triumphant, if you will, and sort of shows all the consequences that Michael has to deal with as a result of taking on this mantle. I like that. It's the sins of the father being passed on to him too, in some ways that it seems like, yeah, this, this story really plays out multi-generational. And we saw that Vito had this sort of happy end to his life, but maybe that's because he passed so much of his his burden of, of what he's been doing onto his son, who now has to deal with it. And, and, and yeah, I, I felt like Michael was almost the villain of this story. Um, I found him far less sympathetic than he was in the first movie, and he far more cold-blooded. And um, the way he, he is sort of dismantling everything in his life it's really pretty striking. I know we're getting like way ahead in the plot. I don't know how, how chronologically we want to go in this movie, but um, I, I don't know. Hopping around is, is also, I think, gives you an ability to talk about the story as a whole in a way that when you're when you're just in a scene, you can't. Yeah. So, I mean, we talked a lot about Coppola last week and, and yeah. just the fact that he followed up that very successful film, The Godfather, two years later with, with The Godfather Part Two, And like Fonda says, it's just so close and so equal in terms of of how successful it is and how how much it works for me personally. Something I did want to mention is some of those things that you touched on really quickly. So De Niro, you said that you felt like it was different, but it did. So did it end up working for you? Did you like that he was like speaking in a Sicilian dialect most of the movie? Did that did that maybe if he was speaking English, would that have worked for, better for you? Uh, no, it wasn't that. I think it was just. Um... Whenever I see a different, this happens all the time on TV and stuff. It takes it just takes a moment when there's an adult actor playing another adult actor. Um, like I, there's a there's a certain benefit of the doubt I'm willing to give. Like when you we have to cast a child to play an adult, like a, a younger version of an adult. Like I get it, they're not going to look that similar. But you know, like as close as they made Robert De Niro look, like he doesn't look the same as Marlon Brando. <laughs> um, it looks like a different person. You have to kind of go. You have to like take a leap of, you know, like okay, they just this is a young veto get over it now now i'm okay and so once i was able to get over it then i was fine <laughs> i think it's funny because i think i've just adjusted to it like to the point that i i think that he totally looks just like him and i'm like wow it's like for really? whatever reason it really works for me um brando and de niro both won oscars for this role so they're, they're the only two actors in history to win an oscar playing the same role oh same character i feel like was yeah same i felt like it was kind of interesting because brando won for best actor and de niro won for best supporting actor Fonda, how did how did you how do you find De Niro's portrayal? I am with James in that it's just so baked into my my understanding of those mm-hmm. characters now that I just accept it. And yeah. I think De Niro did a really I mean, clearly he's he's uh, you know, different person than Brando, but I think he did a really admirable job with the mannerisms and yeah. the presence of of Vito Corleone that I bought it um, very quickly, and I, I and De Niro obviously is a fantastic actor, and just like the you know the way that he talks, the sort of small gestures that he has in the movie, um, I I could see um, that he he clearly kind of channeled 
Vito Corleone uh, as, as a younger person. Um, and it's, and it, I, I can totally see why their, both their performances would be Oscar worthy. I think um, Al Pacino was up for an Oscar as well. I believe so, um, yeah. For, you know, multiple times over the course of the Godfather saga, never won. And so kind of was belatedly awarded best actor for uh, scent of a woman, which is always somewhat <laughs> amusing to me because that was like, I, I don't think of that as, as the defining role of, um, of Al Pacino. And it's like the Academy voters were like, yeah, we have to rectify this wrong. So you get this Oscar for this. <laughs> well, it this seems Oscar like that happens a lot. It seems like we can go back and find a lot of actors who deserved it for a certain role and then get kind of get a hand me later on, right. even though they're, right, they're right. you know great roles. Um, Something interesting about talking about actors and Coppola having to bring all these people back is a lot of the actors really wanted a payout for this movie. So um, a funny one is Sonny. You know, Sonny is only in one scene in this movie. Mm -hmm. And he demanded that he was paid the same amount that he was paid for Godfather 1. And he eventually got paid that amount of money. So he got the same amount of money for part one and two. It doesn't work out all the time, though. Uh, I believe there was some sort of um, dispute monetary and otherwise uh, with the actor of peter clemenza mm-hmm. castellano i think his name was uh, the negotiations didn't work out and uh and so clemenza is not back in um in godfather part two and originally um the role that uh, is in this movie played by frank pentangeli was written for peter clemenza um, oh. and so they had to adjust it by um basically making the character of Pentangeli be like a uh, an associate um, of Clemenza rather than Clemenza himself. Um, so that was a that was a adjustment due to actor hiring issues that uh, that affected the story. And um, and I'll, even though I know we're not covering Godfather Part three, that is the huge one where where uh, Tom Hagen is missing from Godfather oh, wow. Part three because they couldn't hammer out a acceptable um pay rate for robert duvall which is just a travesty because the fact that hagen is missing from godfather part three in my mind like is half the reason um for why that film doesn't live up um i mean there there's multiple things that you can go into with godfather part three and it's not a bad movie but uh but god hagen not being there <laughs> And he was so great wow. in this movie too. Again, yeah. and like he's just Robert Duvall killed it with that role. I would have paid him whatever he wanted for part three. Yeah, exactly. I was like, why? Why did you make Godfather Part Three if you couldn't have Tom Hagen? Yeah, um, Clemenza. I am so. Oh man, I'm bummed to hear that because I love the idea of him being in that, in him be, playing that function in this story because it it unifies the uh, prologue stuff to the to the to the contemporary stuff so much better. Um, that I'm very frustrated now that that didn't happen because I think some, I mean, this movie's great, but that would have been an even better thing to have in this movie. That's frustrating. Damn it. I agree. Actors. Yeah. I know you want your money, but somebody just make it happen. Just, yeah. Negotiate it or, or studios, pay them more, whatever, <laughs> you know, just make it happen. <laughs> oh, that's frustrating. That's, uh, that is one good thing about being an author is I don't have to deal with you know, live <laughs> humans. I can do whatever I want with the characters, the book. Yeah. And Dan isn't going to like demand more money next time to, to appear. <laughs> uh, so the, the last thing I want to talk about with actors and production stuff is apparently Al Pacino caused some problems throughout production 
demanding a, a bigger salary and and rewrites and things like that. He, he also complained to Coppola because he was he has such a slow pace in shooting and rewriting and all of these things. Uh, he was notably told Coppola, he's like, what are you doing? Serpico only took 19 days to shoot. And so basically he's like just comparing all of his movies and saying like, it shouldn't take this long. <laughs> wow. But yeah, I mean, uh, other than that, let's, I feel like we've kind of given our general thoughts. Do you guys have anything else you want to say before we jump into more of the, the meat of it? Let's get into it. Okay. So we start with a scene in Sicily where we see young Vito with his mother walking during, during his father's funeral procession and we hear and we get like text on screen that basically says their brother is like seeking revenge kind of and then he dies basically immediately mm. uh so we kind of get this tragic story of of Vito and then his his eventual moving to america and and immigrating and being put through that process and and then uh be kind of going through his he had smallpox i believe so he had to go through some of that treatment and stuff like that. Uh, how did this strike you? Because I feel like this is a really powerful scene. I am really struck by the fact that comparing book to movie, the backstory of Vito Corleone is like a small section of the novel, The Godfather. Yet it is expanded upon in such a compelling way in this film. It really, I think, humanizes Vito Corleone. Like seeing him as a kid and seeing what he went through and him escaping to America and being in that just long line. He's nine years old. And I mean, I have a nine-year-old. I can't imagine something like that happening to a kid that young. And, you know, we know it does. We, you know, we have stories of Syrian refugees in the news and stuff. We know kids go through these horrible things. But, um, but having a kid that age and then Imagining Vito Corleone as a nine-year-old and going through all of this gives him this, this human element that makes everything that he accomplishes in the first Godfather movie seem all the more impressive. Um, the beginning feels almost like a documentary. That scene where like they're walking in the funeral procession and it's, it's pulled so far back, you just see the whole landscape and then gunfire breaks out and everyone is running around. It has this, compared to like kind of, um, how they could have played it with really close-in shots or quick cuts and and so on. It has this really stark, almost documentary feel. The same thing when he's going through, you know, the line in Ellis Island. It has this sort of this this emotional distance to it that gives it that kind of documentary footage kind of mm. feel to it. I think the scene also really helps to set up. Vito as you know we have sympathy for him right away we're pulling for him right away and just his innocence the innocence that we see of him when he he all through all of this he seems to have just like you know he's being pushed one direction pushed the other and just going wherever he's told and then at the end he's like sitting in a chair just singing to himself as any kid would just kind of not really understanding what's going on and trying to keep themselves occupied Vito's story to me is in a like a quintessentially American story it's the immigrant story it's um, it's sort of that rags to riches. It's the American dream um, in a way, and 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 maybe it it's saying something about the American dream that he in order to achieve it he has to become a criminal. I don't know, um, but yeah, I think it's also you know with with modern events, it's it's sort of it struck a chord with me with a a child immigrant coming in and and what he was able to accomplish uh, in America. I don't know. It's it's interesting because it's that is also undercut by him being a, a criminal. So, um, but I I think 
the one of the things that's so appealing about his story to the American uh, point of view is that whole um, chasing the American dream and, and, and sort of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and all that, because he does that. And he, and he creates an empire out of nothing. Um, and that story, I think, is, is one that we all love, right? Like that's kind of been <laughs> um, ingrained in us as Americans, I guess. Um, I don't know. The, the, am, am I reaching there? Are you guys picking up on any of that? I agree. And I think that something else to note is just that he uh, he still had, I, I think it's, you can kind of see his personality and see what kind of person he is because of the fact that in these flashback scenes, we still see him as young and not even that young, but still innocent. He holds onto that innocence up until he's confronted with it and then makes the most of it. So it's kind of that same thing as Michael, like trying to stay away from it or just not wanting to be involved in it, just being happy with his family at first and then being pulled into this larger empire that, you know, eventually would force him to be, you know, keep his focus on other things rather than just his family, which we can tell from the beginning is all he really cares about. He's also a remarkably calm and composed child, Mm. which kind (laughs) of, you know, um, speaks to the sort of adult that he will become. Right? I mean, he sees his brother killed, his father killed, his mother killed, and he is alone in this new country. And he has this sort of composure, like this very almost eerily composed. Um, mm-hmm. when, you, when you think about the fact that he's this kid with nobody, I mean, he, he'd be, any other kid would be really freaking out. Um, and... I love uh, the foreshadowing that goes on in that scene where his mother goes to Don Ciccio to beg for her son's life. And the Don is like basically refuses to show mercy and says, when he grows up to be a man, he will seek revenge. And you know, as a viewer, <laughs> you know immediately like, yeah, yeah, that's yep, going to happen. happen. <laughs> you're, you're a dead man, Don yeah. Ciccio. Uh, and, and so that, that uh, foreshadowing very early on in the film is is great because you know it's going to pay off later on that self-fulfilling prophecy don chichio can predict his own demise (laughs) and that scene i mean that scene's crazy we'll get we'll get to that let's uh (laughs) let's move on here so michael and his family are are celebrating the first communion of of uh, michael's son basically just like we're learning about how everything has gone since the end of the of godfather part one so we're learning about some stuff that's going on in nevada we're learning about things going on in miami uh but i th- I feel like this scene is supposed to be reminiscent of that wedding scene and and how yeah. did that strike you guys and i guess we'll take it all the way up until the assassination attempt which t- to this day still i think is such a shocking moment with the why are the curtains pulled yeah there's this fantastic contrast throughout the film between the wealth and decadence in michael's timeline and the very you know um salt of the earth immigrant community that Vito is moving in so you get these scenes of uh, you know, big parties and, um, you know, Vegas and uh, Cuba and dancers and singers and, you know, clearly just lots of flowing wine. And so that 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 atmosphere of um, wealth and excess on one hand with the just struggling to make ends meet and sort of that sepia tone of uh, New York in like, in, in Vito's time. 
And here's where you first see it is, is the scene with, um, with uh, Anthony's communion. Um, I, uh, I was struck um, by the interaction between Michael and Senator Geary. So very much like Godfather Part One, there's this big family event, all the Corleones are here, and uh, it's ostensibly this big celebration, and yet this sort of deadly business is going on in the study behind closed doors. So that's very much a mirror of um, Vito and his petitioners in the first movie. Michael, likewise, you know, his, he's had his son's communion, and he's meeting with these political bigwigs. And there's always this um, friction between what is said publicly and what is said behind closed doors. So publicly, Senator Geary is all smiles and thank you to the Corleone family for this big contribution, yada, yada. And then he goes behind closed doors and is basically trying to muscle Michael and saying, you know, I don't like you guineas coming to my state and <laughs> you're going to pay for the license, but you're going to pay 10 times more. And Michael just very coldly saying, well, then you get nothing. So that, that like, uh, that secret antagonism behind kind of the, the surface of what's being said happens many places throughout this movie, including uh, most notably between Michael and Hyman Roth. So there's always that like what's being said versus, okay, what's, what's really being meant. Um, and, and that really comes across in Gary. But I like this, like the, uh, the line where Michael says, um, we're both part of the same hypocrisy. And that's also like a moral framing, right? If you think about mm -hmm. Godfather Part One and how we see Vito as, as really a benefactor when the justice system has failed people, here we see Michael basically you know, saying there's no difference really between me and this politician who you all respect as a law-abiding citizen. He's basically trying to muscle me just like any other gangster. And we're, he, we're, we're on equivalent moral footing here between the Corleones and the, and the, you know, the, the legal um, system, if you will. Yeah, I like that. Uh, so something that hopped out to me in this opening uh, party is I think the, the, the difference between Michael and Vito and how they are a participant in these relative events. And to me, Vito showed humanity. He showed genuine. I just remember, uh, uh, what's the name of the singer? Fontaine? Fontaine. Yeah. Yeah. When Fontaine shows up and, and, and he's so excited and he came all the way from California and he, and he was, he, he was taking pictures with his family. And to me, Vito seemed genuinely happy about his, his daughter getting married and he was taking it very seriously. Michael is just like coldness throughout. He's sitting in the crowd and he's got this kind of blank look on his face. And I found myself going, does this man have any joy in his life at all? Because he doesn't seem to. He seems to be always like he's always on. He's always that gangster and he's never something else. Whereas we see Vito once again playing with his grandkids and showing warmth. Um, so maybe there's just there's something to be said about. Vito's ability to to have kind of lead two lives, whereas Michael is unable to do that. He he seems to be locked into one life, and that and because of that, he ends up destroying his family. and And I just you know I was thinking through the movie, and I do we ever see him really smiling? Do we ever see him actually enjoying any part of this? He's got all this wealth, but he doesn't seem to enjoy it. It seems so empty. 
So um, I agree completely. And here's something interesting. I was watching some of the deleted scenes at one point. And mm -hmm. there's a scene that they filmed where um, Michael is giving his blessing for, I think it's, it's one of his nieces, maybe it's Sonny's daughter or some, someone like that, to get married. And it's a moment of kind of humanity. It doesn't really affect the plot, and so it got cut. Mm. But um, one of the reasons they cut it was because apparently it uh, shows Michael smiling too much. <laughs> so it's obviously a very deliberate choice on the part yeah. of the filmmakers to portray Michael as, as this very cold, really inhuman character who really doesn't seem to have very many moments of humanity. There are a few, but you're right. He doesn't smile compared to, uh, you know, the, the fact that all of Vito's personal presence is based on his, his genuine warmth, his friendship, right? Everything that is an interaction with Vito is based on friendship and owing things to your friends. While as Michael seems very much more transactional, and yeah. you know uh, more about maintaining power through that kind of like through through hard methods if you will <laughs> michael he doesn't realize what's important like he it seems like he does and he says that he does like family is what's important and he and he acts upon being honorable for with the family and for the family but it, he doesn't understand like you were saying it it's not about the family it's not about getting to the point where you can enjoy your life and then enjoy your time with your family because it is so limited and i think there are points in the movie where the filmmakers use to kind of subvert expectations for us because we're thinking oh maybe michael's finally realizing family is what's important and leaning into certain things and then <laughs> come to find out michael just he's just got cold dead eyes and he just he just does whatever needs to be done as far as he sees fit. I mean, the one moment that strands out to me is like sort of the one joyful moment for him is when he gets that drawing from his son and he's taking a moment to appreciate it. And that's right before the assassination attempt. So you can kind of you can sort of see why he's not able to enjoy his life because he can't escape the the violence that he has surrounded himself with. Right. And so it's almost like he can't allow himself to do that. Um, now, how Vito is able to do it, I don't know, other than the fact that he's just like, he's sort of the 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 anti-hero that, that we want to love and, and because of his ability to walk in both worlds. Whereas Michael just doesn't seem able to do it as as effectively, or at least as in a way that is going to be as fulfilling for him as a person. We're, we now flash to Vito in New York with his wife and son. And this scene where he loses his job because of the other Don uh, and the way that Don, that Vito takes it and the way that he, you know, he says it's OK and he's like, don't worry about it. I'll find other work. You've been you've always been good to me since ever since I came here. Like, that's the kind of that's why we root for Vito the whole time. He's just he's just the coolest guy, nicest guy, even though he will, like you said, become this antihero. And then uh, Clemenza shows up and invites him to take part in a burglary. What did you guys think about that scene? This made me even sadder that Clemenza is not in the contemporary storyline because he's in Vito's storyline and he is he starts out being the uh, character who um, you think is sort of the leader, right? He's like the one pulling the jobs and he's he he's gonna uh, you know do 
a favor for Vito by basically stealing this rug. Like they go into this house. He's like, oh, I've got this rug for you. And at some point, you know, Vito, um, you know, uh, has coddles onto the fact that, oh, wow, we're actually just, we're just stealing this rug from this house. This isn't, isn't Clemenza's friend after all. Um, but Clemenza is kind of like this guy, you know, with, with balls and, and some fire in his blood. And Vito, in comparison, seems very soft-spoken, very reserved, very just kind of a nice guy who's kind of holding down a regular job. Knowing the future of these characters and the fact that Vito will become the Don and Clemenza, one of his, one of his capos, it just makes, makes that character development more poignant. Uh, so, so again, I'm sad that Clemenza wasn't in, in the main storyline. Um, but there's, there's moments of humanity that Vito shows that I love. Like there's the scene where, you know, he's just lost his job. And he comes home and he brings his wife a pear. And she's like, oh, a pear. You know, and they sit down and have dinner together. And so it's, those mo it's moments like that that really um, even heighten that contrast, right? We never see anything remotely that tender between Michael and Kay. Right. So speaking on, we were talking about the differences between Michael and Vito. And I think here we see sort of the core things that make up Vito Corleone on display early. And that's, he has a habit or an impulse to cultivate relationships wherever he can. You know what I mean? And, and if that takes him being a bigger person or if that takes him suffering something, but then turning it around into a moment where he can make a friend, um, like we see with him getting fired. And so to me, that that shows that his reasons for getting into this is more about is not about the wealth as much as it is about the relationships he's going to form and the sort of like the capital he can build up in people's lives. And he wants to be important to them and he wants to um, have that respect, I think, is so important to him. But respect, respect genuinely earned, not respect out of fear. Um, because he never he never really intimidates. He doesn't do that. Um, he lets he lets his intimidation kind of all happen as far as his reputation and stuff. But he doesn't directly intimidate. And we see his interactions later where he doesn't do that. And and conversely, Michael is is much more uh, about fear. It's much more about desperately holding on to power and and wealth. And I think um, distancing himself and having as few relationships as possible, and only kind of keeping his inner circle. Whereas we see the Godfather, you know, he's he's bringing in new people all the time to form new relationships, and and oh, he has this vast network of people who owe him favors, and I don't know, it just it seems like there's something at the core of Vito Corleone that uh, works better in this world because of because of his ability to create meaningful relationships with, with people. It's also a function of the, the scope and the time that they're working in, though. Because um, Vito is an immigrant in this um, Italian-American neighborhood in New York. And uh, it, his, his power with the, having these relationships is, is kind of more organic, while as uh, Michael inherits this empire that could fall apart and is working at a really high level involving government officials and... Uh, business tycoons and um, trade deals and things like that. So um, it's you. You kind of get the sense that like that Michael is the person who had inherited the Roman Empire and now has to keep it from falling <laughs> apart. Right. So in many ways he can't um, emulate his father and 
um, is at a disadvantage there. And I think the personal cost to him is so much greater than it is to Vito. And I think spreading out as much as I think it was the right thing to do for their family and to keep them relevant and grow their empire, spreading out lends to not being able to have those more, more personable connections. And you have to start dealing with senators and all these people that eventually come his way. And those aren't people that are really, you know, in a position to do you favors or for you to do favors for them. They just ask and like, there's more deals and there's not favors anymore. And like you said, it's more calculated, more cold. So moving back to the more present timeline, Michael is going to basically find out who Well, I guess let's talk more about this assassination really quickly. Uh, jumping back a little bit. The assassination attempt that happens is so great where she's like, why are the curtains open? And he realizes at the last second and they dive to the ground. But then afterwards, when they're like Michael's commanding all the guys, he's like, find them alive. And then they find them dead. That's the first clue that clearly, no matter what, those people had to be dead because somebody in the family was to blame or somebody close to them was to blame. And they were so scared that if they came back alive, that they would give them away. That, I think the breadcrumbs that get set up for the ultimate payoff in this in this movie are very interesting because it's it's different than in the first movie where it's everything's building and building and building. This one starts with something and then trying and then it's like the the investigation into that for them for the most part and also spreading spreading the empire a little further. I generally find the um, storyline in the present day Michael's storyline is uh, in many ways very convoluted. Um, compared to the very straightforward storyline of the rise of Vito Corleone. Um, there's all these questions of who knew what, who ordered what, who double-crossed who. And um, it works on, I mean, there's multiple angles, and I've seen this movie um, multiple times, and I feel like I have a good handle on it, but I know the first time I watched this movie, I did not have... Um, an immediate handle on it all. In particular, because there are these lingering questions and the assassination attempt is one of them. The drapes are open and the assassins are found dead. So somebody went into Michael's bedroom and opened those mm -hmm. drapes and then killed those assassins. And in fact, the assassins are found by Fredo's wife. She's hysterical and says, they were right outside of my window, which makes, um, once you get the scene where Fredo gets the phone call, um, and you realize that he has been in contact with the family's enemies and is the traitor. It begs the question of, did Fredo do that? Did Fredo right. open the windows of his brother's bedroom and then kill these assassins? Which is very, it's hard to believe. Like knowing Fredo's mm -hmm. character and how timid of a character he is and how he just does, has never shown any sort of propensity for violence. And at the end, I know we're skipping all over the place now, but at the end when he insists that he did not know it was a hit, that he was just in it because he thought there was a little bit for him. All those dots do not fully connect. And and so, you know, there's there's multiple parts here where I like all the scheming, I like all the, the backroom dealing and the twists and turns, but there are definitely parts of this movie that that result in these lingering questions and where you're like, I'm not sure this all fits together and Fredo's betrayal and the assassination attempt are one of them. Well, and in bringing back the Clemenza thing, like that would have, that would have given this really nice connection to everything. Cause instead, instead we're introduced to mo all these new characters too. 
um, that we're having to learn who they are, how they fit into this world, how they how they relate to each other. Whereas we had had Clemenza, who we remember from the first movie, and we knew how he fits into this family and all that. Like, that's really frustrating that that didn't happen because I think that would have been a stronger story, or at least one that would have been like easier to follow, like you said. Because I agree, first time viewing. I, I was struggling with some of these new characters and figuring out who they were and remembering how they relate and, and all that. And it was sort of a process where I'm watching this very actively and taking notes and like, but like if you, if you sit back and just try and, yeah. and just relax and watch this the first time, I could see it being very hard to follow. Yes. Especially because Michael says deceptive things to so many people. And, you know, he goes and has, after the assassination attempt, you know, he goes and talks to, Pente- to uh, first he talks to Hyman Roth. And he tells Hyman Roth that um, Pentangeli ordered the hit and he's going to take out Pentangeli. When if you think back on it, you realize, well, Pentangeli had just left Michael's compound that night. You know, he couldn't have um, he couldn't have ordered that hit. And he's like he's the old school uh, Sicilian. Um, You know, he he's he kind of plays the role of um, uh, of the person from Vito and Clemenza's generation who kind of believes in those family ties and the personal connection. And he's there to petition Michael and he's very disappointed that Michael puts this outside business interest above, you know, the personal ties. Um, so he, anyway, so, so Michael says these things to Roth. Then he goes to Pentangeli and tells Pentangeli that Roth ordered the hit. So he's saying different things to different people, which makes mm-hmm. perfect sense because you know he is trying to deceive Roth. But as a first-time viewer, it, w- it would be confusing. Um, yeah. You're like, okay, well, which does he really think it is? And who, who is it really? And you don't find out uh, until later. And Roth also is being deceptive on another level saying that Michael is going to be his successor and he's going to turn everything over to Michael when you later you find out that really he wants him dead. So because <laughs> of these layers of deceptiveness, you really have to pay it. I, I think The Godfather Part Two rewards repeated viewings. I agree. Yeah. Because it, it does take some time to kind of unravel what's true and what's not. I think the thing that that like allows an audience member to to understand and figure out what's going on is just basically Fredo. Because if if it was if it really was not if Fredo wasn't involved, then it would have been so convoluted to try to figure out which of the two and all those things. But basically, once once Michael over so Michael speaks with Fredo and Fredo says like I don't know either of those people, and then once we find that out and we hear him over to, like at a party or they were at a show and he was like speaking really loudly and Michael hears that he was introduced to this show by uh, I think it was Roth uh that's when we know okay well Fredo regardless of who actually called the hit Fredo was involved and the New Year's Eve party everyone is fleeing um because the rebels and um in that moment when he confronts that is such a poignant scene one that like sticks in your mind yeah the like you know you broke my heart like that like i mean you see michael really show emotion i also love the scene when he realizes fredo is the traitor and it just lingers on his face for a moment and that like the like realization that comes over his face Mm -hmm. is really powerful um so you're right there's a lot of like kind of convoluted double crossing and like who said what and but coming back to that, there's just a sort of tragic betrayal of the brother is kind of what ha- makes that plot really hit home. The idea to set that scene in revolutionary Cuba where 
it's the new year and the government official basically says like i'm getting out of here and then yeah. I, you know everything's about to go down and michael says you know there's a plane that's coming for us uh don't freak out but then at the same time says you broke my heart i know i knew you did it like that is such a crazy scene and then the chaos that ensues after that is just like the chaos that fredo would be feeling and it just like the fact that he runs away when michael's like come with me you're still my brother still want to like get you out of cuba it's that's just like the this the idea to put to put all of that in Cuba with the revolution because they had it you know set in that time period was so so cool, and uh, to speak to the time periods also the the fact that everything's taking place in the early 1900s and the veto stuff, they killed it the production design of of mm-hmm. 19 you know early 1900s and the way that we're seeing cars come up but people are still on like horses and everything's dirt roads and the small shops. Uh, it just works so well, the overall setting of, of those two. And once again, this is a pe- these are multiple periods within this movie because this was filmed in the 70s, yet the contemporary quote-unquote part is like in 1958, I think they say early on. Um, so so that was in itself like a period, and then they had another period. So definitely very impressive. And the Cuba stuff, I agree, the way it um, plays off of the chaos and, and mimics it and, and is really cool. Fredo, I, it was interesting because Michael, in the in that moment where he has that passionate interaction with with Fredo, um, it felt like a mistake to me because we'd seen Michael be so calculating and wait to confront people for the right moment, and it just felt like the wrong moment for that. But maybe his emotion got the better of him um, because he wasn't able to control the situation, and he was in he wasn't able to control what Fredo would do. Um, I was kind of shocked to see that out of him, I guess. Um, I don't know. Is is what, what? Why do you think... I Maybe just overcome with, with sort of anger at it. Um, a little bit of that sunny ang- uh, temper comes out of, in him. Yeah, I think it's because it's such a great point in the story to have it happen. Hmm. <laughs> when everything is kind of falling apart. Like, the clearly the deal with Roth is falling apart. Cuba is... Um, you know, being being overrun by um, the revolutionaries. He sends his bodyguard to go take out Roth, but Roth has been admitted to the hospital and the bodyguard gets shot instead. So it's like, like the pillars are falling, like the, the, the stakes that Michael has put in the ground are kind of being cut down. And that moment when he confronts Fredo and Fredo runs, he tries to convince Fredo to come with him. And Fredo, instead of, instead of trusting his brother is like, I'm out of here, um, is kind of another, um, you know, indication that Michael is kind of losing control of the situation. I also want to point out that, uh, is it Connie the name of the sister? Yeah. If someone wanted to be able to betray Michael and never be suspected, it seems like it could be Connie because uh, it just seems like they have no respect for her, that she doesn't play any important... So, like, if it had been her all along... They would have never known because they never suspected her. Um, it, it's it's amazing, and he treats her poorly um, to where just like Fredo, she could be uh, be be resentful of of what's going on in this family and her role in it. Um, I, I was almost kind of expecting, oh, maybe there's something going on with Connie, but once again, uh, not really. No, because she's <laughs> um, a woman, and the women don't have any real they, important role in this. They just in this don't trilogy. do anything. No, really, no, because Connie's character is always. It always struck me as very strange because uh, she she goes through these 
these roller coastery changes in her character arc, there's not really they're not really um, laid out in terms of how she gets from one to another. So she's hysterical and angry at Michael at the end of the first book. I'm sorry, the end of the first movie, and mm. then she makes an appearance near the beginning of the second movie where she's basically become this like uh she's she's living it up and has all these multiple husbands and wants to get married to this dude that you know she's barely just met and michael doesn't approve of and she comes back and now she, all of a sudden she wants to be back in the family and she's like mm -hmm. totally seems like she's bought in and then going to godfather part three she becomes like a lady macbeth sort of character so she's kind of being used mm. somewhat conveniently throughout the story without any real kind of connection between these huge shifts in her storyline and why she's getting from one point to the other. Like she just, by the end, she's like, I want to come back and be close to home. Okay. Well, all right. <laughs> but you know, we don't, so Connie's a strange character who's not ever really underutilized. It seems like, yeah. right. Which yeah. made me think of, uh, we read Jade city and I was really happy to see a lot of the female characters be very important and play very important roles. Uh, mm. and I felt like something that really badly that I wanted to see happen was to see when become, have a more and more important role. And then throughout the story, as she started to, I was like, yes, this is exactly what something like Connie, like a character like Connie should have had going on, like taken more agency and done more, uh, you know, position, like if Connie had positioned herself to become important in the family somehow, like, I just think that would be so great for her character. And it was, it was awesome to see something like that in Jade City. Well, if you like when now, just wait until book two. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just, I'll just leave that there. Just throw that out there and walk away. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Yeah. I can't wait to read more. So uh, getting back to Godfather here, Vito and Carmela have two more sons, Fredo and Michael. Uh, and this is where Vito is starting to be extorted by Finucci. Basically, he realized that he, he was going to have to pay him money. So he was going to make an offer. And this was, you know, the first offer that that Vito gave that he someone couldn't refuse. Basically, he offered him less money and tried to still play ball with this guy. And he said, like, oh, you're you're funny. And, and then Vito was like, well, it's time to uh, make sure I don't get extorted again. And then the, the parade happens and he you know goes and kills his competition basically to in order to make sure that his family and his friends are taken care of and they're not being extorted i love this rooftop stalking scene <laughs> oh it's so mm -hmm. good it's such a good scene the contrast between you know finucci kind of making his way through the crowd he's kind of like this jovial old guy and his like ostentatious cape and oh, and real quick, he grabs uh, he grabs oranges. Grabs an orange. Grabs, of course, he does. <laughs> were they leaning into it at this point? Because they, I maybe think they were maybe aware they, they must have. They I must think have so. been like, I can totally see the the temptation because as a writer, when the yeah. fans start coming up with their theories, you're like, yeah, that that is a good idea. I think I'm going to run with that. So I can yeah. maybe they are at this point. They're like oranges for everyone. So um, so he's holding an orange. He's walking through the the crowd. And, and Vito is stalking him on the rooftop. And I, I, it's such a great scene. Um, and, you know, the, the way he handles um, Tessio and Clemenza in that um, 
dinner scene is also really great where they're like, well, how are you? you know, he's, he's like, well, I take 50 bucks. I'll sort it out. They're like, Why are you going to do that? And, and, and he's like, just trust me. Just trust me. Uh, so um, I, I find that like veto scenes create almost, I mean, yes, there's murder and stuff going on, but they're, they almost create a sense of levity mm-hmm, yeah. compared to uh, Michael's storyline and tonally as well. Comparing sort of the, the sort of this, everything in, in Vito's storyline seems to be a little softer, a little more sepia-toned, closer quarters. And, uh, you know, so many of Michael's scenes, scenes are more stark, right? You've kind of got that, like, the Prince of Darkness cinematography going on with a lot of, a lot of Michael's scenes. Yeah, the, the way that he, he kills Finucci is, is almost... Um, it seems almost casual, mm. uh, you know, the way that like he he plays with the light and Finucci taps the light and is like, "What's going on?" And then he Finucci is really shocked. He's like, "He can't believe that this is happening." I think the part that I love about this also is that using this kind of prequel flashback type thing to your advantage as a filmmaker, like you're saying, there's a bit of levity there. We're not worried for Vito. We know that he's going to pull this off because we know where the story goes. So I think it's fun to do that and, and to use the that scenario as a way to make the audience kind of just see it, like you said, as more of just like this like fun tale that's happened and, and like the old like war stories or like recounting something that, that happened. Uh, it's, it's cool to see, you know, Vito standing there in the dark with the gun wrapped in like a towel or whatever that was. And, and just knowing that he's going to succeed here and that he's going to go on to become this huge influence and this is kind of his first big move. Then he breaks the gun apart, he comes downstairs and he joins his family at the parade yeah. and he's bouncing <laughs> Michael in his lap and saying like, oh, daddy loves you. You know, he murdered Finucci and now he's he's joins the family and... He's able to keep those lives separate, right? And I love that he's right there. He's like, I, I love you. I love you, Michael. Daddy loves you kind of thing. And then it flashes, yeah. you know, again, a great transition. We flash <laughs> to Michael and what Michael's up to. Uh, so I just want to point out real quick. Uh, I kept thinking about Vito as having this, this, a similar story to the superhero stories that we're getting so much of now. But he's a, to me, he's a super anti-hero, which I think is kind of fun. Um, but yeah, jumping from rooftop to rooftop, much like uh, you said, like how we know he's going to succeed. Um, it's the same because, like, when you see a superhero movie, like, you know Spider-Man's going to be fine. Like, you, you know what I mean? Like, whatever it is. Um, so it's interesting how that can be this, like, sort of dark hero, but also be sort of a familiar story. I don't know, man. Did you see Infinity War? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. But, yeah, no, I agree with you. It is. it is. I like that. So when we return to Michael's storyline, there's this growing sense of dismay in that all these, there, I, I just keep getting the sense that, you know, these things shouldn't be happening. Like, oh, Fredo shouldn't be a traitor. Like, why is Michael having to testify in front of like a Senate Judiciary Committee? Like, mm-hmm. oh, like all these things are just, uh, there's this, there's this kind of growing dread and, you know, Kay loses the baby and it turns out that it wasn't a loss, it was an abortion. And so all these sort of things are starting to fall apart for him. And I think it's encapsulated in that, that one moment when he has his conversation with his mom who did not speak at all in the first movie, to my recollection. She has a few mm. speaking lines uh, finally in the second, but he has his conversation with his mom where he basically says, dad was being strong for the family, but could you could you lose the family? She basically says, how can you lose your family? Right, which is, 
which is sort of like the, th the theme of the movie tied up in one scene, if you will, mm -hmm. right? That like, um, you know, that Vito built this family and Michael is, is losing it. And, um, and that all those scenes uh, after, after the, the revolution in Cuba have this kind of bitter sweetness to them because um, all, you know, Michael still triumphs from a tactical perspective. So he gets out of being prosecuted because he has Pentangeli's brother flown in and mm. in the room with him, um, you know, during the hearing. And that shuts Pentangeli up really quickly. Uh, you know, he, he basically shuts Kay out and keeps his kids. He gets Fredo. Um, and so he's, he's still kind of triumphing on a tactical level. But there is this sort of, of the sense of just despair mm. that starts yeah, yeah, pervading the storyline. It's a what pyrrhic victory, right? Like it's at, at, at such cost that right. it is almost no longer worth it. And it feels to yeah. me that like Michael's gotten himself in a situation where like he's doing all the right things for the for the business and for the family, and yet he's just losing all over the place. He's losing his family. He's uh, in more ways than one. You know, he's losing his his brother. He's losing his wife. His kids are potentially are going to be taken away from him. Uh, if Kay could could do that, and then also we find out that the miscarriage was an abortion, which is him completely yeah. losing family in in a way that could have been prevented in his eyes because he sees it as like this thing where she well she says like she didn't want to bring another one of his kids into the world yeah. mm -hmm. and that leads to one of the most i don't know what's the word like intense just like um powerful yeah. uh slaps in cinematic history in my opinion like i it, i couldn't believe it that slap was something and i think it's because Pacino moves so far to do it and he knocks over a chair on his way. Mm -hmm. But something about that moment, it happens so fast. It's just one slap and it, 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 it it's him losing his temper because we never see him right. uh, strike K other, other than he's, this moment. He's so composed in every other situation yeah. that that scene where he finally just is enraged has a lot of power. Yeah. So there's two more flashback scenes that I want to knock out together real quick. The scene where okay. Vito's approached by a widow who's going to be evicted and the way that he he really does, uh, we see his status in this moment and he basically gives the guy the money and then he comes back after realizing who Vito was and gave the money back. Um, I love that scene because it's like the, that's the beginning of Vito having the status that he does. And then with that status, he the other scene that happens is he goes to Sicily to to go to the Don who wronged his family and he gets the revenge on them that, that he's you know has been building his entire life I'm sure but uh finally has the power to act on it and so he gets into the compound and he goes up and he just says like this is who I am and he can't hear him at first so he gets closer mm -hmm. and it's that very very close quarters murder and he just cuts him up with a knife and runs away which I mean it's just the payoff it's such a great that. scene yeah it's so good the widow scene is like my favorite little mini story from Vito's past and uh, it, it was in the book as well um, and I was I was so happy to see it make its way into this movie and uh, it is what, what Fonda was saying it's it's so light like we we literally see this comedy of this character who comes in and he can't get the door like he can't get the <laughs> door on the right, way yeah. in and out and 
it feels like a different movie almost. Like it's so funny and and the way they all like you know uh, Vito shares a little laugh with with Clemenza and um, yeah, it's such a lighthearted moment and it really it is the contrast between that and the darkness that's going on in the other plot line is is pretty stark. And everything that Vito does is very personal, right? If you think of the murders that he pulls off, Finucci and then Don Ciccio at the end. He gets in close. He has to like see them face to face. And you contrast that with Michael and the orders that he gives, which are, are cold-blooded and are carried out by assassins at a distance. And that creates yet, you know, this, this other contrast um, between them. There is a scene, once, once we are done with, uh, with Vito's storyline, and I think the last scene we get in Vito's storyline is he's telling Michael, wave goodbye, wave goodbye, Michael. And then you go back to Michael's storyline. There is a scene, there's a couple of just really heartbreaking scenes near the end of this movie. Um, One of them is a small scene between Michael and Tom. And Michael basically asks Tom if he's going to leave. Like Mm. he, he finds out that Tom has had this job offer. Tom is like, well, I didn't tell you about it because I turned it down. And Michael, very sort of passive aggressively, is like, "Are you gonna? Are you with me? Because if not, you can take your wife and kids and your mistress, and you can get out of here." And in that moment, it's and and Tom says, "Why do you hurt me, Michael? Mm-hmm. I've always been loyal to you." And there's this that brotherly interaction in that one small scene. I think is really powerful because Tom really is just the most loyal guy. He's just this steadfast. Uh, reliable brother and Michael has lost so much. He's lost his father. He's lost Sonny. He's lost his first wife. He's lost Kay. He's lost Fredo. And Tom is kind of like one of the last things he can depend on. And in that moment, he's he seems cold with Tom, but you can feel underneath that there's this paranoia that he has. Mm-hmm. That he's losing, like he is. Am I gonna lose Tom as well? And they speak, and and he and he asks in Italian. He says, "So you're staying then?" Like he reverts to their childhood language. Like asks, "Are you gonna stay?" And I felt like that that scene really is a it's a moment of uh, vulnerability for Michael that you don't see, you know, elsewhere. And and you know, he compared with how cold he is to Fredo after he finds out that Fredo has betrayed him. Um, so I, I, I love that interaction. And again, like, I think Robert Duvall just like knocks it out of the park throughout. It made me wonder if Michael, it was truly sincere when he tells Tom that he's his brother and that he loves him like a brother, because I don't know if it's true because I, I feel like in this moment, this sort of betrays that he doesn't quite view him as true family. Because if he did, he maybe wouldn't suspect him here. But the converse of that is that his true family has betrayed him now. So like you said, that paranoia is there too. So I like that it's almost unanswerable. Like what's tr- does he really view him or not? Like I don't or is it just caused by the by Fredo's betrayal? I don't know. I do love that they're both everybody's sitting around discussing how they're going to kill all these people and they're all eating oranges. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so that comes back. <laughs> So to kind of tie up the Michael storyline here, Carmela Carleone dies and they go to the funeral. And at the funeral, Michael appears to forgive Fredo. 
And what did you guys make of that, actually, real quick? Well, Luke, because it's the first time you saw it, did you think that he was forgiving him and realizing that it was time for family to prevail? I did at first, um, but before the scene was, like, even done, I immediately went, wait a minute. Uh, We've seen this from him before, right, in the first movie. So, yeah, I immediately thought, "Uh uh-oh, he actually hasn't forgiven him. Also, when he looks up and he looks at Al Neary. Yes, yeah, that and that that tips it. But, like, I feel like I, I was onto it before that moment, like... But then when I saw that, I'm like, yep, okay, never mind. He hasn't really forgiven him. Um, and it, this is going to be very similar to that, to, you know, the, the first movie, which was sad because I I, 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 heard, I was sad for him. Um, and then Fredo, uh, we, we, I think there's a scene in here that we, we maybe hopped over where he has a confrontation with Michael in which um, Fred, or Michael confronts him and he reveals sort of like how he's been so frustrated with his role in the family and he's kind of flailing about. And I just wanted to point out um, cinematically <laughs> uh, or from the cinematography or what how striking this scene was and how, how much I loved it because the way it was framed against this sort of like really beautiful snowy scene outside but then um, and then I kept thinking oh maybe it'd be warmer inside but no it's cold inside too because we see um, uh, Michael's breath frosting um, which was interesting and then yeah Fredo is laid back in this chair and he's, he's sort of um, at the mercy of Michael there and so because of that, he seemed very childlike and he seemed very petulant in a way, too, because he's kind of flailing about and proclaiming how he's so smart, even though I'm not stupid, I'm smart and all this stuff. And I felt so sorry for him, too. And, and I think visually they were doing a lot to make that scene play a certain way. And I just like that was it struck me as just really good filmmaking. And I think he also talks about how he's like, I'm your older brother. How did this all happen? Yeah. So it's like yeah. clearly they were saying like. The older brother, it doesn't matter that he's the older brother at this point, but he felt like he was entitled to some stuff. And he, he says like he wishes he was more like dad. Yeah, Fredo is such a tragic character. Connie even says to Michael, he's like, Fredo is so sweet and helpless without you. Hmm. And it's just... But is he? Or or did he kill two hitmen? Yeah, uh, you I know? mean, getting back to this thing of like not all the breadcrumbs connect very well. What what exactly did he know? I mean, in that confrontation scene, he insists he did not know it was a hit. Well, if he didn't know if it was a hit, then who the heck opened the window and killed yeah. those two guys? So clearly some lingering questions um, as yeah. to what exactly Fredo's role was. And uh, who knows? Maybe, the, maybe they're in Michael's mind, and that's why he decides, yeah. regardless of what Fredo assures him of, he can't trust his brother anymore. And, you know, the, he, there has to be a ultimate punishment for it but the the way they set it up again it's it's very it's very stark and cold because you see um fredo with anthony and sort of trying to get back to a normal life and and bonding with his nephew going out in the boat on the lake and michael just watching from a distance yeah it's really something uh i i there's two lines that are hopping out at me that I'm realizing we haven't mentioned um, that I think are both very important to the story. One is uh, keep your friends close, but your enemies closer. And when I heard that, I was like, hmm, that old cliche. And then I went, wait a minute. <laughs> and so I looked it up and like, sure enough, it wasn't a cliche because it was popularized by this movie. Now, right. they didn't necessarily invent it. It was it was something from before, but it wasn't a thing until this movie. And Michael says it. And of course, it's so important to the story, right? Like we see him do this constantly. Um, and then the other one is the the realization that if if, if, if I think I can't remember exactly how the line goes, like if we haven't learned anything, it's that we can kill anyone. 
And that also goes back to me to uh, that's that is something that Vito learned, I think, early on. Right. Like that's the, the his first lesson was learning that anyone can be killed no matter how powerful. And and that's something he's sort of passed on and I think is also at the heart of this story. And I think that's that's the offer that no one can refuse. Right. Like if somebody's like, you're going to die or you're going to yeah. do this, that's the offer that no one can refuse. That's the implied threat. Yeah. 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 So many lines from the Godfather movies that have just become cultural idioms, like yeah. shorthand that everyone understands now. Yeah. Um, you know, the like anyone could be killed. That shows up in Game of Thrones. I remember sure. distinctly a scene where where Arya Stark says anyone can be killed and right. had, had a Godfather moment there. There's a lot of Godfather in Game of Thrones too. Yeah. So Roth is refused asylum and denied entry to Israel. He's forced to return to the United States. Over the descent of Tom Hagen, Michael sends Capo Rocco Campone to intercept and shoot Roth on arrival. Rocco is shot dead by federal agents after completing his mission. At the witness protection compound, Hagen reminds Pentangeli that failed plotters against the Roman emperor often committed suicide and assures him that his family will be cared for. He later slits his wrists in the bathtub. Brilliant, brilliant scene. Wow. Again, I just love Tom. Tom is like my favorite character, at least one of my favorite characters, uh, because he just he just does what needs to be done. There's this scene earlier where Michael comes home after escaping Cuba and is like, did you get my son a Christmas present? And like, Tom is like, he's doing all this. He's also somehow, meanwhile, doing like Michael's Christmas shopping for him. <laughs> like, so Tom is just, he's just, you know, everyone needs a Tom Hagen in their life, I swear. Yeah. Um, but there, there's a great scene in moment when he has this confrontation with Pentangeli and Pentangeli says, he, Pentangeli is, is reminiscing about the good old days. And he says, you know, the, the Corleone family, we was like the Roman Empire. And uh, and Tom says, we we were once. Yeah, That's I love that. There, there's that that line kind of brings it around full circle of like, now we've seen kind of the, the rise of the empire and the and now we're we're past the peak. And mm -hmm. that like, w we were once is is sort of where we leave the story really everybody knows that the roman empire eventually falls right like that's kind of baked into that comparison um yeah uh, so as one of the things that when i'm watching movies like this or reading stories like this i'm always on the lookout for things i can learn from for my own writing and this scene st stood out to me as an example of something I, I want to get better at and that's um having characters talk about something without talking without like saying the thing they're actually talking about and I love that in this scene, how they're, how they're talking about how um, he can make this up to Michael and how he can ensure that his family will be okay. And the, the way they talk about it all is as this story of, oh, this is what people used to do in the Roman Empire. And it's all subtext. And um, I don't know. I just love that. And it's something that, that I, I think I want to pay attention to because I, I think it's very cleverly done. Agreed. Pentangeli is also a tragic character. He's this old school. He's part of the old guard. And yeah. he really gets short shift in this film because you know he gets denied by michael he gets almost killed in a way in a in a ploy to frame michael for it he gets um used by the fbi he gets used by roth he has to commit suicide i mean he's he really uh it goes through <laughs> goes through some crap in this film um and you 
I feel sorry for him because mm-hmm. he's kind of like that link. And it would have been even more powerful if it really had been Peter Clemenza. But he's that link to Vito's generation. Yeah, does he ever know that he made a mistake too? Because he he thinks that Michael turned on him, but it was actually Roth, right? And so I, I can't remember. Does In his conversation with Tom, do we get the impression that he knows that he's made a mistake? Or does he never really, does he not, does he always think that Michael had turned on him? I think it's unclear, but the the tenor of the conversation that he has with Tom makes me think that he realizes he's been used. Um, mm, yeah. But I don't think that's, that's supported. And that's why he falls on the sword. Yeah. Yeah. The last thing is just the, the kind of mid flashback where, where Michael says he's going to into the army. The final scene that we get in this film, well, first of all, the closing scene of Michael is just him and his thousand mile stare contemplating like all that has befallen him. And, uh, you know, that's such a, like such a Michael Corleone thing, right? That just that like mm-hmm. cold, long stare. Yeah. The closing scene of this movie, I think is one of the most heartbreaking endings in all of cinema history because it shows the Corleone family at its peak mm. at really their, their most powerful and happy. Vito is the patriarch of the family. He has all his grown children there. You know, we see Carlo being introduced. Sonny and Fredo are kind of, you know, play punching each other. And, uh, you know, Tom's there. And there's just this sense of kind of closeness of family at the dinner table. And Vito does not show up, obviously. Like, there, it's... it's He's, he's, they're waiting for him to arrive because it's his birthday. And when Michael says he's enlisted and Sonny gets mad at him, it's Fredo who defends him and congratulates him. And just everything about this scene has such a sense of, of terrible, bittersweet nostalgia. And it's, it's a really effective um, way to to bring the movie to a close because we've got the two storylines and they're kind of going in parallel. One is rising, one is falling, and we kind of end by bringing them together in a way that resonates into both storylines. Yeah, I love that. And and you underlined that the tragedy of Fredo and him being sweet in this moment. You know, like was pointed out. And then uh, the one thing I, I remember noting is is I wanted to, I was like, oh, I wonder if they're going to get Marlon Brando to make a cameo. And are we going to see Vito one last time? Um, but after having that kind of wish, just like because I wanted to see the character, um, I thought about it later. And, and, and I realized that the scene works better with him being off off screen and being absent um, it because it highlights Michael's loneliness. And his and if you end on a moment where they're they're kind of together and we see them happy together, that's a very different tonal ending than him sitting alone at the table and being apart from it all. Yeah. And those two plot lines, although they intersect, it, it also it, it further shows that like uh, Vito is no longer there and he can't Michael can't rely on him. He's gone and, and, and he is alone now. Uh, so, yeah, like that mirrors perfectly with what happens at the end, which I thought was very tragic in itself like i said a pyrrhic victory we've seen him he's 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 done the same thing he did in the first movie right it's very similar in a lot of ways he's pulled off all these multiple murders and and everything's come together and all of his enemies are defeated but this time it's 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 
it's too much for him, it seems like to me. And it seems like he's lost everything. And and ultimately, like I said at the beginning, you know, what what has what why is Michael doing this at a certain point? It's like almost just going through the motions because what is he getting out of it other than just preserving his wealth um, because he's destroying everything else? And I think that's what he realizes in that moment, too. And I think he's yeah. we kind of get flashes of couple seconds of footage of like young Vito that he's kind of like thinking about the past and thinking about himself and and ending with you know Michael going into the service is also it's that moment where they're all together and then Michael's the one who's gonna it's gonna be bad news to Vito and you know Vito doesn't want this to happen so it's like everything's finally come together and then it's like Michael is like this this kind of like beginning of this cycle where he's he wants to get away he wants to do his own thing and then he has he's you know he's forced to come back and like he's in this situation that he didn't want to be in in the first place and maybe he's thinking about how it would have gone had he not had he just let the family fall or something like that instead of taking over yeah. for Vito. Well, I think this is a good place to leave this film. I think um, this has been a joy to cover. Uh, I, I so I want to talk to Fonda about Jade City and I want to specifically bring up a question that might get into some spoilers. But just in case people don't want to have the book spoiled, which I totally understand, and you're gonna and you're gonna check out now, um, we'll do a little kind of like ending here, and then we'll have a we'll have an extra bit after a spoiler uh, spoiler warning. Does that sound good to you, Fonda? Sounds good. Okay, so we we do want to thank you guys for listening to us cover the, the Godfather. It's been an epic journey. We are so happy to have Fonda along for our trilogy of episodes. Thank you for giving me the excuse to binge the book and the trilogy again. Not that I really needed an excuse. But <laughs> a good one. I mean, and you clearly like this is this is something you know well, and you and has been important to you, and it's that has shown, and and we've just loved having you along to kind of almost guide us through this. It's it's been great. Yeah, thank you. It's been it's been such an honor. It's been so much fun. So if people want to find you online and check out your books and all of that, uh, where can they do that? They can find me on my website, which is fondalee.com, or on Twitter, I'm Fonda um, J Lee. And uh, my books are sold in all the usual places, bookstores and Amazon and so on. Yeah. And shout out to the Audible book version, um, which I went between because I have a physical copy, but I also like to listen to audiobooks. Um, so I was doing both. And I thought it was very good. Like, I, I really like the narrator. I thought he did a great job. Um, so, yeah, if you wanted to get that book for free, you can actually use, uh, what is it, audibletrial.com forward slash ink to film. And you can get a free credit. Use it on Jade City. Oh, awesome. Cool. I'm glad you um, like the audiobook. I thought the narrator did a really good job and i'm glad to hear that you guys thought so too yeah absolutely so so we're going to get into some spoilers now so uh you know feel free to check out um do come back we're going to do uh we want to announce we're going to do harry potter and the chamber of secrets is going to be our uh christmas episode which i know is kind of like loosely christmasy but we talked about in, in philosopher's stone that it had sort of a Christmas feel to it. So anyway, enough of a reason. We put it up for vote and our listeners voted on that one. So come back for that. Um, but otherwise, go ahead and check out and then we're going to get into some spoilers for Jade City. All right, spoiler warning over. James, do you want to lead off with anything or do you just want me to get into my thing? Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, I love that Wen is basically like this character who we who we meet and she's kind of in, the, I don't remember the character's name in The Godfather that's kind of the similar role, but it's like Sonny's wife or the person that she's talking to right basically. lucy mancini right, like that right. first big sex scene in the Godfather. yeah yeah so like i kind of was getting that and i was like wow is it going to be is it going to be really similar to to that and then as we go i just loved her relationship with shay as that went on i was like this is so perfect this is exactly what i wanted so i wanted to ask you like in in terms of what what i read uh 
I think that Shay could potentially, and this is, you don't have to answer if it's getting too much into other stuff, but it feels like Shay could potentially in the future be in a position to take on more of a, even more of a leadership role. And then she's almost like her own leader in a way. And then, and then, uh, Juan is kind of trying to, to position herself to be almost like a hand. So I, oh, interesting. You pre- you're, you're predicting, I don't want to predict as, I don't want to predict as much as I want to say, like, uh, what inspired like those two characters to to come together if anything or if mm-hmm. it was just something that you felt like would work really well within this the story yeah i mean i i wanted to like i said create a, a cast of characters that would um have a lot of really interesting and compelling family relationships and um shay obviously is a major character in the story and i wanted um, from the start, I, I wanted um, to make sure that uh, that the female characters um, had their own um, agenda and their own storylines. Right? It's the story is takes place in a in a very patriarchal society. Um, mm-hmm. It is like The Godfather got a lot of like these macho elements to it, and um, I. I don't like stories in which that's sort of an excuse to then not have female characters or mm-hmm. have <laughs> right. female characters who are victims and absent yeah. um, because because women still exist yeah, in I that mean, world. <laughs> we've clearly there have been so many societies and time periods in history filled with sexism and patriarchy and women still playing extremely important roles within that context and mm. uh, and so that was that was um, one of my thoughts going in. Was that you know? In addition to the fact that Shay is this uh, this daughter of the the ruling Greenbone family, and has had um, this life experience of leaving and coming back, um, she's also a woman who who faces um, the challenges of being a, a Greenbone in this in this very sort of warrior caste society. Mm-hmm. And when has even um, a layer on top of that because she's a stone eye and um, that's seen as an unlucky distinction um, in their world and has every reason to be sort of the protected mob wife that Mm -hmm. we've seen in so many other storylines. And I wanted to subvert that. So, uh, so um, it made sense for, for these characters uh, to to have some some interesting um, interactions, and I, I I very much you know thought about well how would each of the characters relate to each of the other characters because one of the things that makes really well rounded characters in my mind is the way they're different with different people right we're not we don't yeah. interact with our parents the same way we interact with our siblings or our children and that's very much the case in real life and. The more you can make that happen in fiction, the richer those characters um, will be. So, you know, I wanted to have Shay have a different relationship with her brother Hilo than she has with Wen, than, Mm. you know, she has with her brother Lon. So all of those just played, I just, I tried to find opportunities for them to have these these sort of rich and complicated relationships. And I have to say that that Shay is my favorite character and the like I think you've kind of talked about it in the podcast but her kind of prodigal son journey and then her becoming a we- the the new weatherman is just 
it, it was just very like it was very Michael, but it was her own thing. And I love that she, uh, the like you said that she she kind of when she first meets when she sees her as like oh she she you know she's just this you know Hilo's lover and she she doesn't really have any, much importance within the context of the story. So that's why I felt you kind of like subverting that by being like yeah it's it's that character, but then ultimately it's really not because she wants to be involved more. And then we see her start to to scheme with Shay. So I just loved all of that. Agreed. Uh, so all right. So I'm gonna lay out my 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 sort of. It's I guess it's kind of like a theory. It's also just an observation. Um, and and we can maybe get you to react to it. But so I was thinking about the role of Jade in the story, and uh, I love that it plays multiple roles. Um, for one, it empowers people to commit violence and to um, you know, become so large, larger than life, and they within their society. It's a commodity that is being fought over, that is being traded, that is being uh, sought, um, and it is also like a drug, um, and that people get addicted to it, and it has this really negative effect on people's lives. Um, and then we see, what is it? The the shine is the other drug, or am I getting that wrong? Yep, um, shine's and, the and, drug. And, and, yeah, yeah, and that and that enables enables you to bring on more jade, right? And um, th- so when I started thinking about it that way, I also connected it to as sort of like a metaphor for the greed and the the avarice, and and, and it also makes sense that it's green, um, and that it's that it's something that everybody wants, but then it also is so damaging. And then you look at uh, uh, Lan. Lon? Lon. Um, and how he dies um, is being tied up into sort of his addiction that he's created and trying to bring on more jade than he can and having to use the shine. And I don't know. I just wanted to get your your reaction to that. Did you did you because you, you clearly set it up to be like almost a drug type presence and how it affects the characters in a negative way. Do you feel like you were trying to say something grander about sort of greed and sort of and sort of that lust for power? Yes. Okay. No, to all of that. <laughs> so I wish all readers were as uh, were were as um, insightful as you just kind of laid it all out. Um, and okay, I'm glad I hit no, on you, you This totally is the first did. time where I was able to say that and have the person there to be like, yes. Right, right, because normally, normally I you say have that. all these theories and you're talking about it, but like, you know, the filmmaker's not there to say yes. Uh, but, yeah. but, in, but yes, to, to all of that. Um, that was very deliberate on my part that I, I wanted to use this trope of the magic substance that yeah. we find in fantasy so many times. And I wanted to play with it and use it as a metaphor for greed and power. There's so much, I mean, if you think about epic fantasy, right? There's always like magic crystals or magic swords. Like that's nothing new. There's always like these magic substances, oftentimes it's, magic rings. You know, gems, infinity rings, right? So there's, <laughs> there's so yeah. much of that in fantasy. And I wanted to use that idea of the magic substance and Jade obviously, you know, fitting into the cultural context of, of this world as, as a way to just, heighten all of the human drama around power and um and that's why it has you know sort of these these different roles in the story of both being a way to have really cool action sequences um <laughs> and and also a way to um ha- uh, have like the international trade and politics 
play out in this storyline and also um, be the personal downfall for some of these yeah. characters as well as a source of strength, right? So there's that, that um, you know, too much of, of anything um, becoming a liability. Uh, that, that clearly applies um, to Jade. And it's also a way to subvert that trope of kind of the, um, the blood talent, right? A lot of fantasy fiction, there's yeah. like some characters that are kind of born with a special ability or they're the chosen ones because they're magicians like Harry Potter, which, you know, you've, you've covered. You're mm -hmm. born a wizard. And so, yeah, hooray, yeah. at age 10, you get this letter and you get to go to the special school. Well, um, in, in my world, yes, you, you have, there's certain people who are born with this greater ability to harness jade, but now there's these advances in technology and that's all changing. So it was a way to also play with like change and modernization and globalization. So I often do, and Jade City, the trilogy is a, is a low magic world. Um, mm. And I, I come from, before I wrote this trilogy, I wrote science fiction. And so I treat the magic almost in a science fictional way. It's the only real magic element in this world. And I like to, to change, I, I like it to be that. I like it to just be, there's, okay, there, the world is very recognizable, except there's this magic substance and that makes everything different. Mm -hmm. And so that's what <laughs> I was trying to do there. Yeah, it works so well. And, and, and I love that the, the tolerance in uh, the people is it sort of makes sense scientifically too. Like you, you build up tolerance to drugs or tolerance to alcohol, the more you, the more you drink. And so um, the idea that they have, they are special only because they've been around it longer, it seems like, and they've built up this sort of like genetic tolerance for it. Um, so they're not chosen. Right. They just happened to be that way. Right. Yeah. And I also dislike the, the fantasy um, cliche of, uh, you know, you're you're just kind of have this magic ability. I, I prefer it when like you have to really work hard at it, mm -hmm. um, and and that kind of um, plays into the whole idea of like you know the, these martial arts schools and the like, all the training they have to go to to be able to like harness <laughs> the magic. So um, so really, Jade City was a way for me to like take all these things that I liked from different genres and elements and like try and create something new out of mm -hmm. them. Yeah. I have to say, you, you talked about the fight scenes. I, I really enjoyed the fight scenes. And specifically, uh, I love what you did with, with Lon's fight scene, where he's coming out and he hasn't fought in a while and he hasn't needed to, to show up in this way before. Uh, so there's like that vulnerability and he's unsure of it. So we're unsure of it. And um, seeing Jade used kind of like that, uh, I thought that was awesome. And the way that the other thing that, that I really, really loved was the way that uh, Andon... Uh, nearing the end he he declines his jade i thought that was yeah. so powerful and so cool that he's like he's realized what a detriment it could be and kind of go i'm so excited to see what what happens with this character next because it's like <laughs> will he be able to stay away from it forever is he still going to be able to uh you know be effective within the family with without it? i would think no but we'll see <laughs> oh just wait just wait i'm 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 cackling to myself because because I'm like in line edits right now and like the book is, <laughs> is turned in or will be turned in very soon. So I'm, I'm biting my tongue because it's so tempting to tell you guys stuff, but I'm not going so to. That, that moment where Andon turns it down was I think the thing that solidified my like whole theory about it and my whole, my whole, cause it, it was his rejection of it at the end that highlighted that like, that's, we're not supposed to just feel like Jade is this perfect thing that we should all yeah. want. 
Whereas if he had taken it at the end, we might have been like, oh, cheering for him. Yeah, he took the J. Right. Whereas instead of him rejecting it, goes like, wait, 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 think about the consequences of this. Um, and then I also just wanted to point out that, that uh, Lon was my favorite character. And so, uh, of course, which always seems to happen <laughs> whenever I read, like that's the one who dies. Uh, <laughs> um, and and I, I think I just I really I really empathize with his position as someone who isn't necessarily the best fighter. Um, but feels like he has to put on airs and, 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 and is worried about maintaining control and just, I don't know, he was so well-rounded and so, um, he was so responsible and and I think it makes obvious that he needs to die because he creates this big power vacuum. Um, God, just really cool and I really liked that character. I love the, uh, the what you did with the wartime pillar thing. You know, instead of the mm. wartime uh, weatherman, it's like the wartime right. pillar. Yeah. He can't be a wartime yeah. pillar, so... Uh, he had to go and like I-, I love that I thought that was so fun that's why I was comparing him to Tom I think I said in the first and last episode I, I- he kind of reminded me of Tom a little bit it- like Tom and Michael and like you know multiple characters yeah. but th- in that sense too right like he he felt like he had to prove himself mm-hmm. uh, one last thing that yeah. that I wanted to say I wanted to point out at least is the the sleeping with the fishes became very re- like very uh prominent and and became like a cultural touchstone thing from the godfather and um mm-hmm. feeding the worms feels like like that send up that you've that you've placed in in your novel and i loved it like every time yeah. they, somebody was like you're they're gonna be feeding the worms i was like yes yeah. i loved it come come was it coming down from the forest is another yeah one? Right. that's also right. great yeah yeah that's the fun part of um being a fantasy writer in particular is is doing the world building and coming up with kind of like the idioms, the cuss words, <laughs> mm-hmm. the cool names. Um, you know, I had a lot of fun coming up with the names of all the characters' cars. Yeah. And like the oh, restaurants really? and stuff like that. That's that's always like <laughs> yeah. candy for me when I'm writing. I just want to say the, the it was such a visual story in the sense that like how these fight scenes played out and, and clearly your martial arts background plays a huge role in that and you're able to block out these fights in a convincing way. And uh, But then you also have like magic going on too, right? So it's not just like a conventional hand-to-hand fight. Um, and like, yeah, whipping the knife, like bullets and knives around you and using it almost like a like you're slingshotting around a sun or something. Like, I love that. And it was kind of rooted in science. And um, anyway, it's so visual that that uh, I think I've said it all three episodes, but I really want to see an adaptation of this. So <laughs> and then you, you guys could do a podcast and... on it. That would be cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's why I'd love to. Yeah. <laughs> Selfishly the, uh... speaking, right? <laughs> the, uh, the other thing yeah. that you were talking about, your the world building that you've done, and I loved the a lot of the older story that we got piecemealed out. Like we would learn and the interludes, yeah. I especially love like those kind of uh, mm. moments for us to get like insight into like their lore and like what they believe their beliefs are, what their like ancient stories are. Um, and then even that like, you know, two generations ago, I believe it is where the they're all there's like the wars that go on and everything. I, I thought that the the world that was built around these characters was so f- fully realized as well. So I really love that. Yeah. And I, I keep, I keep going cause I'm so in this podcast now I'm like, how would a filmmaker design this? How would this look, you know? And I, it, what would be the aesthetic of, of, of Jade city, the, you know, the adaptation. And, and those are all really interesting questions that I really hope we can get into at some point. Because if this is adapted, we will definitely cover it. I'd say that right now. <laughs> well, if you guys know any Hollywood uh, um, folks who are interested, <laughs> send them my way. <laughs> well, do, well yeah. maybe, maybe somebody listening to this will yeah, do it. <laughs> um, but yeah, thank you. Thank you so much, Vonda. This has been this has been truly, truly a, a fun 
uh, experience and an epic one going through the trilogy uh, of uh, episodes on The Godfather. And it's just been really cool. It has been really cool. Thanks, guys. It's been a lot of fun. All right. We just want to thank patron Andrew M. Uh, Thank you for supporting us. And, you know, this podcast wouldn't be possible without the support of our patrons. Uh, If you'd like to figure out how to become one yourself and what we're offering, go to patreon.com forward slash ink to film. And if you want to connect with the podcast, we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all of those at ink to film. And on Facebook, we have a group called the Council of Inklings where we interact and people vote on our projects sometimes. And uh, we post about ink and film related things that are going on in the industry you're gonna run that joke into the ground man. <laughs> i'm gonna make it so that everybody doesn't want to hear about ink or film anymore <laughs> um yeah we just posted a poll about our holiday special and scrooge was like doing really really well scrooge uh almost you know on the power of bill murray alone perhaps um but no it lost out to harry potter so we will be returning to the wizarding world for our christmas episodes which i know you got to be excited about james oh my god so excited to do i couldn't it was so hard for me to not read chamber of secrets as soon as we finished sorcerer's stone like a month ago all right we'll be right back into it um so we hope you join us for that and and i know it's not really a christmas movie but hopefully it's close enough Um, there's a christmas scene (laughs) (laughs) right (laughs) so if you wanted to send any feedback to the podcast we're ink to film at gmail.com yeah you can send any sort of uh questions you might have or anything you want to talk about uh, in regards to harry potter or we have our last looks episode coming up later uh, at the end of december and we'd love to get some more questions for that anything we want us to do like if we want to if you wanted to ask us to reflect back on anything from this year that would be awesome so definitely send those in the other way you could help out the podcast is leaving a rating or review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, we recently hit 50, which was 51 awesome. now, I think, actually. And so 51. We're and now we're on our way right to 100. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, on we our go. way. <laughs> uh, yeah, that would be awesome. Also, thank you to Universal Beats and AJ Pro for the use of our intro and outro music. Yeah. And thank you again to Fonda for coming on. It was so cool to have, have her here and read Jade City. This was a really unique project because of that. And, and I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it was fun to get like that. We got so many different perspectives on this now because we, you know, we watched the movies and read the books and then read her book. And it was just such a cool way to experience her book as well. All right. Until next time. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.